Om Asatoma Sadagamaya Tamasomaham Jyoti Gamaya Brityohormam Amritam Gamaya Avir Avir Mairhi Rudra Yate Dakshinam Mukaha Te Namaham Pahinityam Om, lead us from the unreal to the real. Lead us from darkness unto light. Lead us from death to immortality. Reach us through and through ourselves and protect us from ignorance by thy sweet, compassionate face. So my subject this morning is psychological mayavada. And we're going to be talking about the doctrine of maya. Let me give you a little context for our talk this morning. In a previous lecture, we addressed the metaphysics and the ontology of maya as illusion. In another lecture, we discussed maya as a statement of facts, that we live in a world of relativity. In this morning's lecture, we're going to be discussing the epistemology of maya, how it works in our own mind, and is ultimately the cause, the root cause, of our suffering. Let us begin here with the fundamental teaching of the Vedanta philosophy, and that is that you are a divine, immortal soul, that you are not the physical flesh and blood body, you're not the mind with the waves of thought and feeling, you are not the role that you play, the melodrama of life. You're not the person that you think yourself to be. In fact, you're not a physical being, but a metaphysical being. Not a person at all, but a transpersonal spirit. You are the spirit. And the spirit is unlimited. It's unlimited by time, by space, or by causation. It is by definition infinite. And because there can only be one actual infinite being, the spirit is one only without a second. And this is your true nature. You contain everything within yourself. And you are eternal and free. Today, however, we are embodied souls. Our infinite consciousness has somehow been localized and limited. We've fallen out of the realm of our infinite being 
into the world of becoming. And we are subject to the divine power of Maya, which has two workings in our life. One is that it veils our true nature. We don't know who we are. It's covered. And secondly, the projecting power of Maya projects this whole, creates this whole world of our experience, including our own body and our own mind and our memory and all the aspects of our psyche. That's all included in the world. Now it so happens that all even though, but now, even though, this is the, the idea, is that even though you're infinite, even though your divine being is infinite, it can never, it, because it's infinite, it can never be truly hidden. That is, our true nature is veiled from us, but it can never be fully veiled. Just like the sun, covered by a cloud, there's still a lot of light everywhere. And the light comes down and it reflects all of the off to all the objects and the names and forms in the world. And this catches our attention. And we're dazzled by the bright lights. And hence we pursue the reflected light. And we pursue the absolute in the relative. And this is Maya. Now we all have within us, all human beings, share universal values. Truth, goodness, beauty, knowledge, love, freedom, peace, immortality. Everybody, all human beings, so everybody, these are all our values. All of these values are truths. They do not exist in the material world that lies and folds in front of our eyes, and they do not exist in our mind. They're not... Uh, they're not constructed by our own thinking. Rather, they are eternal, absolute truths that exist above the Plato's dividing line between the absolute and the relative. Above the dividing line are all these truths. Below is the world of our experience, the changing world of particular things and particular names and forms. And yet we spend our lives pursuing the absolute in the relative. The stuff that's above the dividing line and the stuff that's below the dividing line. We spend our lives pursuing the absolute. 
that we're born is embodied, we're embodied souls. That is Jivatmans. And when we were thrown into this world, we were born with our senses facing outwards. And therefore, we, whatever we seek, we look for in the out external world. That's the way it is. We can think about the example of the Brahmin widow who was one day seated in her little cottage and the, uh, by the light of the window, the sun was, uh, the sun was setting, it was sun, the sun was setting. It grew darker and darker. She was doing her sewing. She was a seamstress. Gradually it became darker and darker till she could hardly see, couldn't see anymore, and she dropped her sewing needle. And what was she to do? Well, she set her things aside, and she went over and she took her shawl, put it around her shoulders, went out the front door, down the steps, walked down the lane, and came to the main street, and then she walked down to the street where there was a bright street lamp. And there, under the street lamp, she began to look around. And, uh, well, a policeman came along that way. He saw it. He said, uh, Madam, says, what is, have you lost something? She said, yes, I've lost my sewing needle. He said, well, let me help you find it. And he began to look around. He got down his hands and knees, looked everywhere. Are you sure that you lost it here? She said, here? here? She said, no, I lost it back at my house. What well, why are you looking here? Asked the policeman. Well, she said, she said, well, because this is where the light is. Makes sense. So we're like the Brahmin widow. We're seeking what we're seeking, what we've lost within ourselves, what is what is covered within us. We're seeking outside. And this is Maya. The workings of Maya, how it a kind of we can recognize it in our own behavior. Let's think about the famous Greek myth of Echo and Narcissus. Now Narcissus was a the son of a river god. And one day he went out hunting in the forest. He spent the whole morning, early afternoon. He couldn't find any deer. And so tired, weary, he came to the clearing in the forest, and there he saw a large pool of water. Calm, placid, silvery surface. And around that pool, there was a cool and grassy, um, soft turf. And so he kneeled down there, and he was going to get a drink of water, he reached down into the water 
And there he saw a face. And the image, seeing that face, he just stopped. And he gazed into those eyes. And he was transfixed. And he was spellbound. And he couldn't believe it. And he fell in love. And he was so... He tried to reach down and to grasp that figure in the pond. And no sooner did, did, as soon as he did so, yeah, disturbed the water, it disappeared. He started back, oh, he was so disappointed. But he waited for a few moments, and it returned. And so he tried again. He disturbed the water again. It disappeared. He drew back his hand. And he sat there like this time passed, tried again and again until he couldn't do it. And he fell into um, a state of despair. And uh, he cried out to the woods. He said, oh, ye woods, oh, ye trees, who is there who is more unfortunate than I? What I love, I cannot touch. It's only separated from me by a little bit of water, but still it escapes me. Who is there who is more unfortunate? Oh, oh face that I have loved in vain. Farewell face that I have loved in vain. These were his last words. And then the echo came back from the mountains. In vain, in vain. And uh, so Narcissus wasted away there by the pond. And there in his place there grew a white and yellow flower, a Narcissus flower, which still can be seen today on the banks of the rivers because he was the river god. And you can see the dramatic... Um, painting by W.C. Waterhouse of Narcissus looking in the pond. And, well, it's a tragedy. It's a tragic story. It's a tragic story because it's, a, it's serious and it has a sad ending. The tragedy of the story, now I'm going to give you my Vedantic analysis here, not psychology. The tragedy of the story is not that Narcissus loves himself. Because we all love ourselves. That's natural. The tragedy is is that he does not know that the person in the pond is himself. He thinks that the image in the pond exists apart from himself somewhere in the water. And that he can, he reaches out his hand to grasp his own reflection. And this is Maya. Now this, um, I'm trying to just go, I'm trying to explain this, going around, uh, walking around the subject, giving us some examples, that's all.
so we can kind of get an example of some of the workings of this divine, what do you call it? we could call it, spiritual ignorance. Veil the veil, how we ourselves are veiled from ourselves, and we see ourselves in reflection. This is a story about love. And, of course, in Vedanta, when we talk about love, that is, we means, I'm talking about the Upanishads, when it, when, there's no love in the Upanishads, but by love, what we mean, what Vedanta means by love is true love. When it talks about love, even in the yogas, it's talking about true love. It's talking about divine love. It's talking about love of the Atman. Self-love with a capital S. You know, they say that we have two selves. We have the lower self, which is our conventional, everyday ego self. And then we have our higher self, our divine self that is the spirit within us. The lower, when the lower self reaches up to the higher, that's what in yoga is called love. That's true love. That's divine love. And it's reaching up from the lower to the higher. Now we say, sometimes we speak in those terms in philosophy, we talk here about the lower self, that is the self with the small s, and the self with the capital S. And sometimes maybe it gets confusing, but the fact is, is that there's really only one self. And that uh, love is a feeling of oneness. And in fact, really, we can only truly love ourselves. When Vedanta speaks about oneness, it's not just speaking about being together. They're really speaking about identity. Oneness is identity. And the only thing that we're identified with in the whole universe is ourself. That is our divine self, our true self, the Atman. Now, it's true that we can love others. But the reason that we love others is because in the Brihad Aranyaka Upanishad, second chapter tells us, the reason why you love another person is because you see the self in them. The reason the wife does not love the husband for the husband's sake, that is for the sake of the body and the mind, but for the sake of the soul, the self that she sees in the husband. The husband does not love the wife. The parents don't love the children. For the, their, for the sake of their personal self, but for the sake of the divine immortal soul, which they see reflected in themselves. That's love. That's Vedanta idea of love and in yoga. Now you may say, well, that sounds pretty far out. That sounds very 
abstract. Uh, we're talking about love in these terms. Very abstract, very metaphysical, philosophical. It sounds like the love of the angels or like uh, the love of the saints. And it's true that uh, what the yogis are talking about when they talk about love, they're talking about otherworldly love. That means true love. That means divine love. And this is really, of course, this is what we all seek. This is what we want. And yet we cannot find it. Because still, we're looking for love in all the wrong places. The love is within us, within our divine nature. And this is Maya. Looking everywhere for that which is with, within us. Now let me give you a few more examples. In my schoolboy days, I had a friend. And he collected baseball cards. And uh, gave him great enjoyment. And his ideal was to collect a card for every player in each one of the teams of the 14 teams of the American League. And it's only really when I came to Vedanta that I began to understand uh, what is the depth psychology of making such a collection. Because after all, when you think about a collection, it's like, a, it's like drawing a circle. And then you're going to, one by one, you're going to get the cards, and you're going to fill up the circle, and you're going to achieve completion. You're going to achieve perfection. You're going to achieve unity. And um, it's a kind of, completing the circle is fulfillment. And we can say, why did the boy do that? Well, we say, the ordinary answer, well, because he likes baseball. But maybe a force for a philosophical answer would be that um, what he really seeks is that sense of fulfillment, that sense of completion, and his own unconscious, symbolic, childlike way, he's trying to uh, trying to grasp the fulfillment in the complete in the completion of the set of cards rather that he's trying to see in the complete set of cards his own a vision of his own unitive vision of his true self well it's uh 
Well, that's putting a positive construction on it, kind of a philosophical construction on it, and yet it really is futile. And this is Maya. Seeking in a collection of cards, think about it, seeking in a collection of cards that which is your own unitive nature. It's inspiring in a way, but it's futile. It can never happen. This is Maya. Maya means spiritual ignorance. The results, what are the results that we see as a result of having the, of the being veiled from our own, not knowing our true nature? Upanishads spell out for us very clearly what is our true nature. And yet we see it as a metaphysical ideal. It's not our real experience. I remember when I went to school in Berkeley, my way to class, I used to see middle age, I'm going to give you another example. There's an example of a, well, I used to see certain middle-aged men with a stack of books under their arms on their way to class. And they weren't professors. They were perennial students. That is, they were enrolled in the university, but they weren't pursuing any particular course of study. They didn't have any program for uh, getting a degree. But rather, year after year, they just loved to attend classes and to gather knowledge. They were in pursuit of knowledge for its own sake. We could say that. Now, as students of Vedanta, we can say, well, that sounds very good. Because after all, Vedanta, this is the knowledge society. That's what Vedanta is. It's all about the pursuit of knowledge. And furthermore, we can understand how it would give great intellectual pleasure to someone to pursue knowledge because knowledge is like light. And just as light removes darkness, so knowledge removes ignorance and that makes us happy. And so this is a kind of the positive construction that as students of Vedanta, we can see the divine working in even the most ordinary behavior of even, even, even a common, ordinary person. The deep motivation is very spiritual. That's the good news. The bad news is that knowledge, that the two bad news is there are two kinds of knowledge. There's lower knowledge and there's higher knowledge. The knowledge that Vedanta talks about is direct, immediate, super conscious realization of your own true nature. 
superconscious self-realization. It's a kind of knowledge that we can never, it can never be grasped by the intellect or by reason, by, by, by uh, conceptualization or by data processing or by attending academic, doing a lot of academic coursework or by reading in books. This is not book knowledge. That can't give us this higher knowledge. As Sri Ramakrishna says, you take the almanac, farmers carry an almanac, predicts the rising setting of the sun and the rainfall. Well, the almanac has predicted 10 inches of rain. We can read that. But we can squeeze the almanac and we won't get out a single drop. Similarly, the lower and the higher knowledge. There's a big difference between the two. The difference is between the menu and the meal that's served for you to eat. The difference between the map and the territory. And oftentimes we confuse the two and uh, pursue the one, pursue the lower, at the expense of the higher. And this is Maya. It's natural. It's what all human beings do. That's because we are under the influence. That is, we are forgetful of our true nature. Well, let me give you another example. And that is of the, uh, the artist. You know, art is a very, and aesthetics is a very important branch of philosophy. And we've discussed that on previous occasions and how the purpose of art is to make the abstract concrete. And in doing philosophy, we're dealing here with abstract conceptualizations. It's very metaphysical and um, difficult for us maybe to wrap our brains around it. Therefore, what we need is we need something that will make the abstract concrete, that will enable us to take these, these, the concepts and to be able to perceive them and to sense them and to see them and to make them graphic. We have to admit that's, that's the purpose of the fine arts. That is painting and music and literature. To make the philosophy, that is, I'm talking about great... Well, the fine arts, that is making, making the philosophical ideals perceptible, making the universal particular so that we can see it and we can relate to it emotionally. That's why it's crucial as a branch 
of metaphysics. And when you look at a work of art, <coughs> we uh, see what we see, what we grasp, is our principles. That is, we grasp certain truths are revealed to us. That means things like truth, goodness, beauty, things like, um, well, knowledge, things like balance, harmony, uh, unified, uh, unity and diversity. Um, these are all principles of art. That What is it? That they're objective principles that make a thing beautiful. See, the beauty is not in your own, inside your own skull. It's not in the object. It's not inside your own skull. That is, this is not some kind of weird idealism philosophy. You're grasping something which is true and which is objective. But it's very, um, that is, it's spiritual. These are spiritual ideals. These are truths which exist within us. That is the principles of fine art. They're part of the unity of our own nature. And I remember how on one occasion Swami Vivekananda he was on the ship Golconda, the second voyage uh, to return to the West in 1899. And the ship was passing through the Straits of Messina, which is somewhere, if you look on the map, you can see it's somewhere between Sicily and the coast of Italy. And uh, it was night, and the full moon had risen. And the moonlight was reflecting off the cliffs. And someone said, yes, look at the beauty of Messina. That's the city they're passing. And Swamiji said there on that occasion, yes, but Messina must thank me. For it's I who give her her beauty. Well, those are the words speaking from a very high platform of thought, the words uh, of a Brahmagyani who had realized his true nature and who somehow understood that the beauty which lie before the eyes, in front of the eyes, was not somewhere outside in the cliffs, or in the lights, but that rather it was within. And this is kind of the, this is the, this is the idea that beauty, that art, is a representation, that's the purpose of art, is to represent beauty. And be the beauty which is represented, the key word there is, from a philosopher's point of view, 
The key word here is represent. That is, the source of the beauty is not in the art object, the artifact itself. It is reflected and represented to us indirectly and uh, rather than its being the source, it is the reflection of the source. This is why if you go and you see, um, let's say that a painter Uh, an artist makes a great painting and um, it's hanging now in a gallery and some people come by and maybe one person sees that and so oh what a beautiful picture it's a very beautiful picture they stop and they look at it but do you think that they sit down on the bench and just contemplate it with detachment? No. The first thought that comes to their mind is, well, how much does it cost? I'd like to own that. I'd like to buy that. I want to possess it. And this is Maya. We seek to grasp that within. We reach without. So, I hope this hasn't been too weird, too, too confusing. This morning we've been talking here about the psychological effects of this maya. By maya, we mean spiritual ignorance. As to why we're subject to maya, we haven't discussed that. As to the metaphysical analysis, we haven't done that this morning. All we've done is we've noticed some, some examples. We've noticed the Brahmin widow and Narcissus and uh, the collector of the baseball cards and the typical university student and the artist. And these are all people. They're just... They're like ourselves. They're examples of, of the natural behavior of all human beings. And yet they're examples also of the human predicament. That which we love, we cannot touch. It always escapes us. And this is Maya. So this Maya is the cause of the corruption of our perception. It's the cause of the corruption of our perception and our reason. Is that which leads us astray from finding the true meaning and purpose of life. It is the root cause of our suffering. And the goal and purpose of spiritual life 
is to transcend maya, to overcome, to go beyond our limiting ignorance and to attain true self-knowledge. The subject next Sunday is let us rejoice and be exceedingly glad. And Swami Sumanasananda will speak. Om Dyo Shanti Antariksham Shanti Pritivi Shanti Apashanti O Shadaya Shanti Vanaspataya Shantihi, Vishwe Deva Shantihi, Brahma Shantihi, Saravam Shantihi, Shantireva Shantihi, Same Shantirehi, Om Shantihi, 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 Om, peace is in heaven, peace is on the earth. Peace is in the sky and in the waters. The herbs and plants and trees are full of peace. The gods are peaceful. May this eternal universal peace enter our souls and beings. Om, peace, peace, peace be unto us all.